Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Achtung, Achtung, or should that be Tally Ho, Tally Ho? Oh, it should definitely be Tally No, it should be, uh, um, what should it be? Um... <laughs> now, what did you say? What would you say if you were sort of said bandits at... Bandits at Angels 16. I, I don't know. It'd be something like that. A, a smooth start, as ever, on We Have Ways to Make You Talk. <laughs> Bandits at Angels 16. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we, uh, Jim. <laughs> Little we, jobs. We, we're, 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 we are speaking to a very special guest today. And, yeah. um, great uh, friend of the show. Great friend of the show. Someone who is taking a little tracking down, if we're honest. Well, because I'm he's just... very, 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 very busy. <laughs> always. Um, always very, very busy. Um, so, who are we talking to today, Jim? Well, we're talking to a great pal, Richard Grace, who's he's a sort of you know he's he's one of the good guys on the Warbird circuit. Um, obviously, took us <laughs> up on the uh, up in the Mustang, and what yeah. a great day that was um, yeah. a, a year or so ago. Yeah, and um, and you know I kind of like the idea of, of, of an occasional series called Heritage Heroes, well, people well, who are keeping Jim, the flame alive. Come on, Heritage Heroes, Heritage Heroes. We have to give it the Warbird legend. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Richard Grace was a heritage hero. So, um, Richard, before we descend into our usual drivel of poor voices, <laughs> the simplest question, I suppose, how come you've ended up, um, I mean, look, looking behind you, the photographs of the aircraft behind you, how come you are... Well, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> I would love to have done something else, but, you know, I just couldn't. <laughs> You'd love to be an accountant. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just grew up in it. You know, my father rebuilt Osbit I bought it in... 1979, finished it before I was even a year old. Right. So I don't, you know, fundamentally, I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> I didn't listen well at school. I did listen well in the hangar. So, uh, yeah, I guess that sort of, I, I certainly in my mind was never going to do anything else. Yeah, right. So I guess that's, it, it's certainly something you've got to be, um, I'm going to say, absolutely transfixed on to get anywhere because this oddball knowledge that you need to do what, I kind of do is something that you only get through not having any mates. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what would we you like you, Richard? It's what, all right. What would you say? You're, I mean, you know, uh, and we should also say just first up, happy birthday to Richard. Yes, happy birthday to Richard. Oh, thank you. That's very kind. 30s come around again. Uh, very, yeah, very I, know. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> um, to follow on from that, what would you say the skill set is for, for what you do? Yeah, it's, I mean, for me now, as a Said to change last weekend, the skill set really just involves signing my name on a bit of paper a lot of times. Um, but you get to that point when you've done all of the bashing your knuckles into the split pin for the fourth time that day, you know. Yeah, the skill sets are just a bit of determination, really, with it, with regard to engineering and a, and a mechanical understanding for things that were being done very rapidly in the 40s. Yeah. So, you know, if you can fix an old car, then you probably come and work in this hangar, but if you can only fix a new car, you're probably not going to get a job. So that's interesting. So because the mechanics is all is essentially, I mean, old-fashioned is, obviously it's all cutting edge for its moment and all that sort of yes, stuff. Yes, quite. If someone's good at fixing up old cars, they're at least on the right track. Yeah, definitely. It's all the same stuff. It's, I mean, there's barely any difference between it at all. I think the only thing I find between the old car stuff, which I've done very little of because I'm too busy doing old plane stuff, is that the old car materials are really soft. Right. So when you come to dealing with pipe work or or actual sheet metal work, it's all the actual material is soft. Whereas with everything we're dealing with is all hardened and tempered and you know heat treated to a specific spec. Sure. So no, from a simple engineering standpoint, and the, and the tools that one would turn up with in one's toolbox. They're, they're much the same, really. 
Wow. But Richard, I, I, I want to rewind a little bit, if that's okay. Um, so go back to your... I mean, how did your father uh, end up with, with a Spitfire? And it's a very special Spitfire too. So what's the story behind that? So he was a war baby. Born yep. in, well, you know, very young war baby, born in 37. Um, but he'd always, you know, as a, most people of that age, and, you know, my father died when I was four. So this is just, I mean, the story is more hearsay. I've not heard it from his mouth. But, um, you know, he just wanted to fly a Spitfire. Who didn't? <laughs> but he knew that no one else was going to let him fly their Spitfire. He had a career in aviation anyway. Did he? So what was he doing? How did that come about? He did a bit of crop spraying uh, in ah. Australia. He was a charter pilot over there as well, running around. For so is that where he met you? But he wasn't Australian, was he? No, he was English. My mother so, was Australian. So that's where he met your mum? Correct. So, and yeah, he was. He flew into my the family farm of my mother's family in a tiger moth to spray some stuff, and that's how they met, which is pretty glamorous, I think, other than yeah. I bet you the tiger moth was an absolute dog of an airplane <laughs> <laughs> having seen some ag planes in my time i bet it was a shed <laughs> we stank of pesticide well i was going to say the romantic smell of pesticide and, and aviation right, yeah. fuels yeah a bit of roundup <laughs> so yes that that's how they met and um yeah i came back to the uk and he was a very clever man i mean he built mach- like large um, mass production machines and and various stuff completely outside of the aviation industry. So he was um, he was a, a mechanical engineer. Effectively. He was an engineer by trade, yes, right. a civil engineer and mm-hmm. and a design engineer. Right. Um, so yeah, clever dude. And he, um, as I say, he knew no one was going to let him fly this bit far. He saw these two aircraft for sale in the back of the newspaper. I want to say it was a classy one, like the big broadsheet thing, like the yeah. Times or something, but it probably wasn't. <laughs> the Mirror, and. Um, <laughs> And they were up at the Strathallan Museum in Scotland. So he very swiftly decided that that was the way to go and, and bought two of them. Bought um, two? Wow. Yeah, there were, there was two for one. 30,000 quid. In 1979? In 1979. Okay, so that's still quite a lot of money by 1979. Yeah, and I guarantee you he didn't have it. I guarantee you he borrowed it. Um, right. But, um, and then went up to... Scotland, they were in Strathallan Collection in Scotland, just near, I think it's just near Fife. And... Um, put them in a couple of Pickford's lorries, brought them back down to right North Cornwall, uh, St. Merrin Airfield was... Oh, wow, yeah, okay. And then unloaded them and quickly assessed everything he had, figured out, he knew he wasn't going to build two, so he figured out which was the better of the two. Again, as I have done many times, nicked all the good bits from the other aeroplane to make sure he wasn't going to get caught short, and then sold the leftovers. And only a few, (laughs) you know, a couple of months later, sold all the leftovers which was still another Spitfire for forty thousand. Oh, oh, okay, very smart. Okay, yeah. you'd stay in that business, wouldn't you? You would. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, spent the next few years rebuilding them. So it's my understanding that the aeroplane had been purchased by Samuelson Films for the Battle of Britain. Of course, they didn't want two-seaters. So what they did was they... So, the, so it was turned into a two-seater immediately after the war. Wasn't it by the Irish Air Correct. Force or did I imagine yeah, that? Yeah, for the Irish Air Corps for by the Supermarine. Irish. Okay. Um, I think it's a Type 502 or something like that. Right. They call it. So it was a complete aeroplane and it was then had all the innards stripped out of it, all of the systems and everything, and put into boxes because if one needs a gear selector quickly, you don't want to have to go and pull it out of the aeroplane. You want it just in the box. Yeah. So, of course, you know, it's the age-old hilarious story that I quite like from the Battle of Britain film in that there was a load of Spitfires and Hurricanes and a load of Bouchons. I think there was 28 Bouchons, and I know you chaps don't necessarily like Bouchons. I apologise <laughs> for even saying the word, um, but I quite like them. There's a certain appeal to them, um, and this is the appeal. So the Bouchons, of course, being Bouchons, remain serviceable throughout the entire filming. They had a couple of spare Bouchons, which they thought they'd need from Spain, but, of course, on day two of the filming, they bent the first Bouchon, and I think on day five they bent the second one, so there, there were their spares. Same with the Spitfires. They thought they were going to be able to have all these Spitfires flying, and they would need spare parts from other Spitfires. But, of course, probably on hour one, the first Spitfire didn't work. Yeah. So then they were just burgling bits out of that Spitfire forever, and mercifully, ML 407 stuff never got touched. Um, so when my father bought it, it was essentially the shell of an aeroplane with all of the parts in boxes next to the aeroplane. Uh, wow. Which okay. was, in a way, it was a huge Good blessing because it saved him having to take it out. Yes. Because he 
decided that, and he was dead right, that the aeroplane actually needed to be completely re-riveted because it had been assembled, as I'm sure you know and many people know, with magnesium rivets, yeah. um, which over a very short period of time were already dead, yeah. you know, yeah. 35 years, and they were done. Yeah. Um, so and I, I believe he was the first person to completely re-rivet a Spitfire. And there's, there's sort of something like a million rivets or something. Oh, I dread right? to think. You know, yeah. I did at one point. I thought when I was a young man that I was going to count them all just to have the number, but I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> the pub was calling. But um, yeah, it's a it, it is not a small undertaking. I think fair to say that. And at the time, he was a, you know definitely a real pioneer mm. because people just thought he was bonkers. They were still flying around in these only relatively young aeroplanes and here's this farmer from Cornwall as they used to refer to him as um who's decided he needs to completely rebuild one because he somehow knows better but actually you know 40 years on from his original restoration he's still going strong structurally we have no issues really that's amazing touch wood. so it's basically exactly no the same aircraft as it always was absolutely and it's and it's pretty unique in that you know, back back then it wasn't, there was no point in this, I'm going to come up with a polite word for it. I'm going to say reconstruction, Re, yeah. let's say reconstruction, uh, making an aeroplane from nothing. There was no need because the aeroplanes were still around. So you just take a complete aeroplane, take it apart and put it back together again. And these days that really separates the earlier restorations from the new ones because right. actually you are... Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, need to be careful what I say because well, your listenership is such they might all hate me. Well, no, the program I did narration for about Biggin Hill was called the Spitfire Factory, and the reason it, I would argue that it's called the Spitfire because they make Spitfires there. They do make them. Yep. They make them, and we've got one next door now. You know, one of my mates has just just picked his Spitfire up, and it's actually got quite a lot of original stuff in it. Yeah. In all fairness, but they're lovely. It's it's a brand new Spitfire. Yeah, um, you know what a great thing, but. I don't know. To me, when you I mean I've flown both and when you're flying it, it doesn't feel like a Spitfire. It does. Does it not? That's but it really doesn't. Isn't... Like okay. in, in my head, okay. it doesn't. It flies exactly the same. There is no discernible difference. It goes up goes okay. up the same, goes down the same, goes along the same. Are we talking like a C D vinyl thing here? Yeah, that's right. It is a, that's a really good way of putting it, actually. <laughs> it is like listening to the vinyl of something and you think, ah. It's really good, isn't it? If, but if you recorded that vinyl and put it on a CD, it wouldn't be the same, would it? That's really interesting. You know, you can make a loaf of bread out of mud, but if you bite it, it's still mud. It's not a loaf of bread. Um, so, so what your dad did was was basically just it, the whole thing was original, but what really yeah. needed change was the rivet. So get so take it all the And there's a couple of skins as of well. Of course, you know, I'm sure. I'm not saying it's completely 100. But it's pretty we, original. Yeah, we've got one next door. Again, next door sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We've got one next door that is completely original, minus the wing spars and one skin. Um, wow! And that is, you know, that's a very special thing. But it's, um, yeah, it 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 definitely is pretty damn original. I'm going to say. And what about the engine? Uh, what did he do for, for the for the engine? Oh, long since gone. Um, <laughs> right. So so when he restored it. You know, we, we found a fuel bill the other day, actually, that we that we framed. Because I think in 1980, I want to say it was 88 or 89, Avgas was 8p a litre. So <laughs> one could easily use your Spitfire to get around the place. And, and that's exactly what he did. He just used it like a, you know, I've got a little thing called a Vans RV7. It's like a little two-seat thing that you whiz around the countryside and go from airfield to airfield. And that's what he was doing with the Spitfire. He was just using it every day. Really? Um, wow. What a lot. So, yeah. so how long did it take well, him to finish it? Uh, he started in 79, finished in April 85. Wow. But he did do loads of other stuff in between. I mean, I think that's... That wasn't just riveting though, right? <laughs> no. There was loads of, you know, actual work work, as I would call it, happened in between and lots of buying and selling of this type of aeroplane. I mean, if you look up on the old, I'm just trying to think what the, what the best website for it is. Anyway, these websites that that wonderfully list the ownership of every aeroplane from build to now, you'll certainly see his name on a lot of Spitfires and other aeroplanes as a, you know, as a thing he bought and just traded straight on. Right, and that was um, to fund the rebuilding of the two seats. Yeah, and, and just to fund life fund in general. Life. Um, yeah. <laughs> 
just one of those things that you do. And I mean, I still do much the same. It's, there's yeah. no difference now. It's just the numbers not. are bigger. So you were four when he very sadly died, and then, yep. but your mum rather brilliantly decided, well, hang on a minute, we've got this bit far. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take on the mantle, didn't you? Yeah, good honour. Um, yeah. And she, you know, she already flew, so that helped. You know, she had a, a thing called a stomp, which is like a Belgian tiger moth, but. 100% better. Um, and she was flying <laughs> I'm feeling, around. I'm feeling that. some bad Tiger yeah, Moth. I think the Haviland uh, yeah, I, got, I, I, got, I own a bit of a Tiger Moth. And if you get the right Tiger Moth, it's absolutely lovely. It's just there. there's only seems to be one right Tiger Moth, unfortunately. You have been up but, with a Tiger Moth, Al. Um, I, you know what? I think I have, but I can't remember. I no, think I I've done have. it. Never done it. Never done it. I think I think I have, but I can't remember. I think I did it at Duxford, but I can't remember. Yeah, I never have. Yeah, it's a kind of long thing time you, ago. It's a great thing to think about going up in. The act of actually doing the going up is not so enjoyable. But if you look at it and think, <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be just wonderful? Across the British countryside and a tiger. But don't, just don't do it. You'll spoil it. Just stick to the um, Mustang. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> um yeah, so she already flew. She didn't have many flying hours, but she already flew. And um, and she just knew that that Spitfire was something special. And it was really a piece of my father. You know, it represented a lot of his work and yeah. labour and love. And um, and he certainly, as far as she knew, had never planned to, to flog it. Um, right. You know, for the next thing. He was always going to keep it. Mm. So, yeah, she learned to fly it herself. Um, and did, and was on the warbird circuit for years, wasn't she? I Absolutely, mean, she was an yeah. She solo it in the in 1990, and uh, and then eventually quit flying in 2017. So yeah. nearly, nearly 30 years of of flying, and she didn't really fly anything else. She only flew that. Yep. Um, and the stomp that we've still got, you know. Oh, have you had that aeroplane? Had that aeroplane longer than anything? That's amazing. Um, so, although I probably am going to sell, and and, but, um, and you've if, got if you know anyone that wants and you've got a sister, haven't you? I think. I do have a sister. You yeah, a sister. She, so, um, I mean, it must have been quite. I mean, it must be quite hard for your mum, kind of, sort of bringing you two up and trying to keep things afloat. Oh yeah, definitely. You know, a four and a five year old, kind of left on your own, with it, surrounded <laughs> by broken aeroplanes, because that's what happens. <laughs> Just surrounded by broken aeroplanes and two serviceable ones. We had a Bouchon at the time as well, um, that she very swiftly sold to the old flying machine company to the Hannas. Um, and that was obviously a godsend um, just after my father had been killed because, you know, we don't, we still don't now. Yep. We don't have any money. Yep. We just got aeroplanes and stuff. Uh, and, and who would want money when you've got aeroplanes and stuff? Um, so it's, um, yeah, she definitely a daunting prospect. And there were unquestionably a lot of people that told her that she shouldn't be doing it because of because it's dangerous and it's only as dangerous as you make it that's my opinion but um yeah so uh but good on her you know no there's no doubt in my mother she was a very determined one of the most determined people i've ever met in my life and she gets a mindset on something she will do it and she will do it well so um yeah off she went with a long yep. dark hair down to her waist in a ponytail i think <laughs> half time just to wind people up <laughs> and uh yeah you know flew the airplane really well i think it I always used to joke that it was just because no one told her it was difficult. And she used to take it in and out of all these tiny little runways that I wouldn't dare go near. And... Did she, I mean, you say she wore her hair long to wind people up. Did she encounter sexism as well? Oh, all the time. Really? All the, yeah, I was just, yeah. I can well it, imagine. it was relentless. Absolutely relentless. Even yeah. like in the past few years since she stopped flying, it was still the same. Oh, I shouldn't have been doing that. And she wasn't doing it properly because, you know, she's a woman and, and she can't. And I mean, it was just, I've flown with her and she was honestly, yeah. she has a really good pair of hands as a pilot. Uh, and, you know, but yes, relentless. There's a story written down somewhere. Unfortunately, as many people should know, her and I were involved in a car accident in December and she's no longer with us. But someone wrote this brilliant thing about her where she basically sat at an airfield with the Spitfire, had some waffly old ex-Air Force bloke telling her how she shouldn't be doing it and how dangerous it was. Got in the airplane and bug it off. You know, just, Thanks, mate. See you later. You, know, you say what you like. I don't really care. But that's just how she was. You know, typical Australian. Well, she she was she was an amazing woman and and absolutely charming. And 
I was lucky enough to meet her a number of times and she was always incredibly nice to me and lovely and charming and she's a complete pioneer and and you know to you were saying about determination I mean you need the determination to to, to be able to learn to fly a Spitfire but you also need the determination to actually you know stick two fingers up to to what is it was and I, I suspect slightly remains um, a very misogynistic yeah, male environment and you know, all power to her, frankly. Yep, absolutely. No, good honour. She did a good job. And and as I say, you know, I've, I'm eternally grateful because I'm sat here looking out the window at what is still my Spitfire. Yep. <laughs> and it didn't have to be, um, but, but it, yeah, it is. So that's... Uh, well, let's take a, a quick break. And then when we come back, we'll, we'll talk about how you got into it and started flying and how you develop your own business. Yep. And which plane's best to fly, Jim? We need some of that sort of talk too. Yeah, yeah, we did a lot of that talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't want to deprive anyone of that. Um, we'll see you in a tick. But not a tiger moth. Yeah. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the uh, anti-Tiger Moth podcast. <laughs> um, um, Anti-Tiger Moth, anti-Bouchon podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're not anti-Bouchons. <laughs> just, just like to keep them in their place. That's yeah, all. absolutely. Um, um, we're talking to Richard Grace, um, who's been a warbird legend. Uh, take us through life as a warbird legend. <laughs> and a heritage heritage. Heritage hero and legend. Um, uh, um, yes, I mean, you, you know, some people in their teenage years would go, I want nothing to do with these aeroplanes I'm going to be an accountant I want a normal there's a bit of that oh, oh, right oh, okay. it did happen oh, right because you do get you do get sick of going to air shows every single weekend when you're a kid uh, particularly when you're going to the air show and then fundamentally you know your mum's flying in the air yeah. show which is of course a bit of an oddity um, but you don't go there you go there by road so it's a bit of a pain yeah um, you need to be there because mum hasn't got childcare so you're sitting in the you know in the caravan normally and mum's doing the air show and you're kind of wandering around seeing the same traders that you saw last weekend at the but other okay. show all right richard <laughs> yeah exactly yeah knowing i've got no money um so i'm pretty pointless to them so yeah there was a time when i thought you know I just really like going fishing i think i'll just go fishing for a bit so i did a couple of summers of going fishing but you know other than that you know it was it was only a mercifully a a blip so when do you start sort of tinkering around with engines? That's the kind of usual start, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to say a bit later than you might expect. So obviously I was always surrounded by bits of aeroplane. You know, we had a big shed at our house, like a big, big shed, like a hangar, basically. Is there kind of sort of oil was, smudges everywhere? Yeah, over all your clothes. Everything. Floors, walls, doors. Yeah. Um, <laughs> still is now. But, it, you know, that was full of, at the time, when we first moved to that house, which is, you know, I can really, as a period in my life, I can remember vividly, um, we still had most of the stuff left over from all the Hawker Tempests. So my father had seven Hawker Tempest twos and a Tempest five when oh, when he passed away. No. I know. No. I know, that's the face I pull no. out. Oh, my, <laughs> my God. Yeah. Um, and again, the Tempest Five was something that was swiftly sold because Kermit Weeks, the brilliant aircraft collector in Florida, if anyone doesn't know who Kermit Weeks is, you need to look him up. But he um, he was keen on that because of its rarity, so he um, he soon swept that up. And the Tempest Twos just went steadily. You know, they, they'd some of them my father had already sold, but others were still around, and there were still you know wings and canopies and bits of engine and carburetors and all this kind of stuff kicking around so we just had a shed full of stuff and of course through years of buying and selling spitfires and other warbirds you always end up with something left over you know every airplane that because what inherently happens is the airplane comes in with all the spares to make the airplane and then you make the airplane the airplane goes out and then you make a deal for the spares afterwards and buy the spares because we're in the business of fixing airplanes so you um yeah you do end up with with an accumulation of stuff but what I can tell you is it's quite good fun if you've got, I'm going to say there was a good five or six of these Hawker Tempest, the sliding portion of a bubble cockpit Hawker Tempest canopy. You stand them up on their end and then you can kind of run between them like they're little greenhouses. <laughs> yeah, used to do that. Um, <laughs> so, so I certainly grew up playing around aeroplane stuff and always going to the airfield. But the act of actually fixing aeroplanes, I'm going to say my mother kind of kept me away from it slightly because she didn't want me trashing all of her good parts and ended up messing around with Meccano and push bikes and 
Lego and anything else I could come up with, lawnmowers, whatever you can take apart and put back together again. I was definitely doing that from as long as I can remember. I'm not an engine tinkerer. I've never been an engine. Right. I'm probably rubbish with engines, actually. I'm, I'm no, I can diagnose a problem when one's got a problem, but these days it's like, oh, yeah, that engine's broken. Can you, you know, get on it, will you? Um, I do it myself, but, you know, um, <laughs> it's... Um, yeah, I just don't. I, I've always been more about the the structures. Yeah, okay. You know, so so these days, you know, sheet metal work, airframes, making a sheet, repairing some sheet metal is is a thing of great enjoyment for me. Not that I really get to do it anymore, but that is the thing I like doing. And, and what about the flying, Richard? When do you when do you start flying? Oh, that was very early. Because <laughs> you can learn to fly at fourteen, can't you, or something ridiculous? You can. Yeah. So I first went flying in an aeroplane when I was two weeks old, which was our you know stomp tiger moth but better. Uh, that was on my mother's lap in the front of the stomp with my father in the back with my sister on his lap Jeez. in an open cockpit aeroplane. I was just going to say, has the world changed a lot since then? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of changes going on. But, and, and, you know, and he'd literally, he'd got like a, this is according to my mother, he'd got a football, leather, proper leather football, kind of cut a shape for my head out of it and then kind of peel, filled it with foam and popped that on my head and that was to keep the sound out. So, you know, so I certainly went in an aeroplane from a very oh, long Oh, those were the days, weren't they? Yeah. But there's a lot to be said. You know, I think that's the was probably the most important thing that happened for me was going flying a lot when I was young. Yeah. And an aeroplane just becoming a normal thing, just a thing that you use to get from point A to point B. It's, I'm not saying it's not a special thing for me, but an aeroplane is just, it's a mean, it's like a car. It's a it's usual a, thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I bought my first aeroplane when I I got my license when I was nineteen. I was a bit delayed, primarily due to boarding school, that they would they thought it was the coolest thing ever that this guy that was at boarding school was gonna go and get his flying license on his Wednesday afternoons instead of doing Duke of Edinburgh award scheme or whatever. But it um they then realised that the realistic element of that was that I actually had to go and do it. And they were, oh, no, you can't actually go and do it. I just want to talk about it. Um, so that that very swiftly fell over. So you had to um, leave school first. Yeah, that's right. And and then the second I left school, I went straight from there. I'd obviously been flying steadily through the years, but probably only accumulated, I don't know, 20 loggable hours or something like that, although there was a lot more flying than that. My mother wasn't ever an instructor, so the time flying with her, which was every weekend that there wasn't an air show on, she'd still go flying in the stomp, and I would inherently go with her. Incidentally, what about your sister? Did she ever learn to fly? She got a long way through it, but uh, she's just not that interested in Fair it. Fair enough. No, I mean, not uninterested. She's very interested in the business and what we do and, and aeroplanes, but it's not a thing for her at all. Oh, okay. Um, Whereas, yeah, I, I couldn't tell you why, because um, I'm absolutely intolerably obsessed with it. But it's um, it, it's it's just not something she's ever been that bothered about. Um, probably because she's intelligent, which is not <laughs> something I can say for myself. Like really intelligent. So um, yeah, good for her. But um, yeah, so so I, I I went flat out when I left school and managed to get my license by the time I was 18, not 17, uh, which was frustrating because I really wanted to get it as soon as I could, but it just couldn't happen. And um, and then was kind of didn't have anything to fly, so I ended up working in a push bike shop fixing push bikes because my mother, although she very kindly paid for my flying license, there was a limit. And I think if she realised, <laughs> if she just absolutely handed it to me on a plate, that I probably wouldn't. I'd, it'd be too easy. Um, so, yeah, so fixed some push bikes for a while, sold some alloy wheels and that, you know, yeah, yeah. to car people, big bumpers, big stereos, went to the <laughs> pub a lot, and then eventually mercifully came back into the fold and, and worked at, at a little flying club just fixing Cessnas at weekends and whenever they broke, which was really good, actually, you know, good to have that day in, day out, you know, go clean the spark plugs yeah, yeah. on that, go pull the cylinders off that all that kind of stuff, which it definitely stood me in good stead and really guided by a really good guy that just knew how to fix aeroplanes. And it was during that time I got my first aeroplane, which was a thing called a Cassett Racer, which you can just see this. Oh, yeah. There. The yellow, <laughs> um, yellow thing. Little yellow thing. And it's a tiny little Formula One air racing aeroplane. Um, and that kind of developed my obsession with tiny little Formula One air racing aeroplanes, which is I'm still afflicted with now, unfortunately, because um, I just think they're 
really good looking little things. But that, yeah, that was what sort of really saw me into to flying. I had about 80 hours when I got it, total time. And I just I used to fly it to work. I used to fly it every single day wow. without foul come wind, rain or shine. It was just a really enjoyable little aeroplane to fly. And uh, and then I found another one that was a fixer-upper. So I bought that, fixed it up. And then I found another one in a garage in Leicester with an ironing board through the side of it. Um, <laughs> so I fixed that one up too. Uh, and, and I've still got another one now next door that needs fixing up. So yeah, that that was the the sort of first aeroplane I properly restored, right. if you will, in that it was a flying aeroplane. Um, I always sort of say in this hangar, we don't do difficult jobs, you know, because <laughs> difficult jobs just take twenty years, and yeah. and that's sort of not not really what we're about. But um, you know, we do do more difficult jobs now, but we, I still yeah, try yeah. and avoid them if I can. So when did you start building up the business you've got now? Because you've got you've got an, an incredibly impressive setup at, at Cywell now. You've got two hangars full of planes and amazing planes they are too. Yeah, it just we, we set ourselves up over at Bentwaters um when so so Duxford's a weird thing. I kind of grew up yeah. and and I spent a lot of my existence there. But you can't have a commercial business at Duxford. Well, when you're me anyway, for some reason, they, they just, most people can't, although there are commercial businesses. There are Duxford, some there. Yeah, hey, yeah. what would I know? Um, so you can't have a commercial business at Duxford. So if you want a commercial business, you have to go set it up somewhere else. Right. So we went out right to the east coast of Suffolk to RAF Bentwaters. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the biggest farm strip in the country, which yeah. was just heaven as far as I was concerned. And, and had this lovely little hangar and we just started fixing aeroplanes um started off with the little white ones that you see at flying clubs and ended up with the big camouflagey ones that you see at air shows um really culminating in the c fire three that we was basically the last major thing we finished out of there which was you know a super cool aeroplane you know the world's only c fire three yeah and i think it was i don't know i don't know why people came and wanted us to fix their aeroplane or rebuild it they just did uh, so I, and i didn't say no so yeah, maybe I was just too cheap or something. But they, um, <laughs> they, and, and then well, I met with um, a chap called Graham Peacock, whose company's Fighter Aviation. Yep. And he was just at the time was just looking to to make a collection of aeroplanes. And um, you yeah, know, all credit to him, he's made a collection of aeroplanes, which I deal with. You know, I maintain and operate for him. Yep. And um, and that's why yeah, that's why the the fleet, if you will, is quite so exciting. Yeah. It's all. Most of it is is Graham's, although we do a lot of stuff for other people, but but most of those people don't own ten aeroplanes. For those that don't know, what are the ten? What what are the ten aircraft? He's got? Oh, it's a test. <laughs> I get my fingers out. Yeah, sure. So <laughs> we've got the TF Mustang that you chapped yep, went in, yep. uh, Contrary Mary, P forty seven Thunderbolt, yep. the Sea Fury, Spitfire Mark five, Spitfire Mark fourteen, Hurricane Mark one. There was a Bouchon, but that's now gone. So there is no bush on that. Uh, well, there's a Lockheed 12, the Sydney Cotton Lockheed 12. Um, we're doing these two ME109s for him now, an, an F and a G. Yep. Um, uh, the Tempest. I told you I was missing something. Yes, yes. The Tempest. Um, and he's also got a Hunter, which lives down at Northfield and doesn't currently fly. And there is something else. And he's if he listens to this, he'll kick me for not remembering it. But, <laughs> but yeah, there, there is another one. Um, yeah, and then, you know, we've got a number of other. I mean, as I look out of my window now, I can see, you know, one, two, three, three Spitfires, a Stearman, another another Mustang that we're just about to finish yep. and roll out. Yep. Um, and, you know, and the beginnings of, a, of an ME109 or BF109. And you've got there. two hangers there, haven't you? Yeah, correct. We've got one that's very much the maintenance hangar and, and the stuff happens in. And the one next door is is where we put the things that are in one piece and can be readily wheeled next door. And and the, I, I noticed last week when I was up there that the Tempest is now in the um in the complete hangar. It is. It's done. It's done. It's I mean, last time we saw you, were, we even, were we even allowed to talk about the Tempest? I can't remember. I don't think we were, really. We could, we, we could only talk about it in hushed tones. No, I don't think we were. We were trying to kind of keep it shh But... No, now we are free. We can totally talk about it. And it is, yeah. So it's um, huge. You know, I, I could check my email now and see if I've got the email from the CAA. I'll bet you five quid I haven't. But I'm literally awaiting one email from the CAA and then we can go flying. I mean, if a Spitfire's a mini, it's a it's an enormous SUV, isn't it? It's but, a Spitfire that ate a Spitfire. Yeah. You know, it, I mean, it's twice the weight. 
And it's when you stand them next to each other, it's hard to believe that they're both fighters, really. I mean, obviously, I appreciate the Tempest came a lot later, but bloody hell, they, they weren't messing around. No, it is a big airplane. It is airplane. a beast, isn't it? It's absolutely yeah. huge. And I must say, hearing it on the tie-down out the front of the hangar, you know, when, when you rebuild an aeroplane, you, you run the or put a new engine in, you run it to full power. Um, when we used to do that at Duxford, it was always up the far end of the airfield, up near the, the threshold of the runway, and it all seemed a very long way away. But here... The tie down is about oh I don't know five meters from the door of the hangar, uh, so it is spectacular. And when you've got, I think it's just over twenty seven hundred horsepower of Centaurus running flat out. Yeah, when you think that old Allison engine that powered the first Mustang was yeah. one thousand one hundred fifty horsepower. Absolutely, or an early Merlin at nine hundred or something. Yeah, you just think oh yeah, we've we've moved along a lot. Um, I mean, obviously with a two thousand seven hundred horsepower. Engine, you do need a 2,700 horsepower aeroplane. Yeah. So, I mean, the gear legs, you can't pick up by yourself. They are immovable. They, you need, you know, you need two or three people, ideally, to pick up an undercarriage leg. Wow. Um, wow. So it, it, everything's heavy. Um, everything. But it is... Um, is it flying? It will be in, hopefully. Oh, right, li- right, I'm right. literally waiting for one email, and then it can. And you're, you're going to... F- Take it out. No, I'm not. The Graham, who, who or Fighter Aviation, who own it, uh, he said that I don't need to do that right now, and he's dead right. I don't need to do that right now. Um, and we've got our chief pilot, Pete Kinsey. You know, probably one of the most experienced, if yep. not the most experienced guy in the world. Why would you have anyone else do that job yep. uh, other than him? So he's all prepped. He's taxied it around. He's even opened the taps up a bit, which was quite spectacular. <laughs> We've even ironed out, you know, there's always, it's always that thing when you're trying to test fly an aeroplane, but it hasn't done much taxiing. Is it, you, you know, you get the, drag the guy up from Kent or wherever he's come from, put him in it, go, right, off we go. And he taxis it out and the brakes don't work or something. Yeah. So we've, we've, we've got over that bit. We know it will get to the end of the runway and we know that when he opens the throttle, he'll get all the power. So no reason it shouldn't go flying. Wow. Yeah, what a day that'll be. Well, um, it could be this afternoon, presumably. Could be. It's not impossible. Yeah. Nice day. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> so come on then, favourite plane. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, so it's a real toss-up. I'll start by saying it is horses for courses. You know, yeah, It's about what you mm. want to do with an aeroplane. But I uh, just can't see a way that you can find a better flying aeroplane than, not what you're expecting me to say, than, than a Sea Fury. Um, it, it, oh. <laughs> right. it is an amazing, it's got its problems. And that's why I say it's horses for courses. You know, if you just want the best flying aeroplane there is, in my opinion, of what I've flown, it has to be the Sea Fury. What, for power, manoeuvrability? Everything. everything. Climb ray. I mean, but just the handling of it, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it, we need a two-seat one. I know, I know they do make them, but if we had a two-seat one, I could show you. But it is unbelievable that an aeroplane will handle so nicely at 150 knots and equally nicely at 410 knots. Wow. You know, it just doesn't, it's finger and thumb, just like a Spitfire, but with this huge speed range, mm. um, you know, far, you know, probably 100 knots bigger speed range than a Spitfire, maybe not 100, but 100 knots bigger than a Spitfire. It is a no. It's a staggering piece of kit. Um, the only problem is it does have a Centaurus in the front, so you end up kind of like a cyclops with one eye on the oil pressure and, right. and the other eye out the window because it, you know, the Centaurus is not an engine that tolerates not having any oil pressure uh, to the point where it stops, uh, which is bad. And has that happened to you? No, no. Touch wood. Good. Um, mercifully, <laughs> and it's but I mean it's about how you use it. You know, the manual is, in my opinion, yeah, the manual is very specific on how you should use the Centaurus and and we operate it completely in accordance with that manual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think if you start doing things outside of that manual, you can probably expect problems. Yeah. Um, and I mean, just getting it to the point where you can fly it is a huge nightmare. I mean, it's, it's at least a day's work for two people. If it hasn't flown for a fortnight, it's a day's work for two people to get it to the point where you can fly it again, just in preparation and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you know, you said it's a heavier plane, everything's heavier, everything's bigger, yeah. everything's more powerful. Is that, I mean, would that at the time have meant that you ne- it needed all the extra maintenance? Or is this, or is this a function? So what they did at the time was they just ran the engine every, like, 24 hours. They would just get them out and run them. And not even on the carriers, they'd just be running them all the time. 
Um, and, and that is the issue, is you've got to keep the oil all over that engine internally. So this is a function of a restored aircraft? If you, Yeah, it's a function of the Centaurus because of the wacky sleeve valve nature right. of how it works. Right. You have to keep the oil in those sleeves and everywhere else for that matter. Otherwise, it's going to let you down right. because you've got too much contact surface area, basically. If you, you know, for those that don't know what a sleeve valve is, I could try and explain it, but um, let's have a go. You may as well. Um, <laughs> this is We Have Ways After All. Yes, I've, heard, I've, I've heard wackier stuff than this explained. So, um, <laughs> so, you know, if you consider that you've got your piston going up and down in a cylinder, mm. that cylinder inherently is a stationary thing. Piston goes up and down, valves open and close at the top. Yep. Simple stuff. Well, the sleeve valve is far less simple in that you've got the piston going up and down, but the valves are no longer at the top. Now the piston is going up and down in a cylinder that is also going up and down oh. and also rotating partially at the same time. So it doesn't go round and round. It it sort of rotates as it comes up. Think of it as like it's on a big thread almost. So as it comes up, it rotates, yep. and then it goes down, it rotates. And and then the, the, the cylinder or the sleeve, if you will, that, that is the sleeve of the of the cylinder moving, it has holes in it. Yep. And at points during its rotation, those holes line up with associated holes and air can go in and out. And that's how the valve works. Got it. Um, you got that, Jim? Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I like the, the screw thing. Yeah. There you go. It's such a handsy thing, though, for a podcast. A handsy thing is a bit rubbish, isn't uh, it? I think we've got Whatever. it. We, <laughs> even without your handsying, um, I think we've, we've, yeah. we've got it. So, but if you consider now all of a sudden we're in a, in a cylinder, like a, think of a 2800 or something like that, you know, probably the most rugged and reliable World War II era aero engine that I'm, I can think of. It, in your cylinder, you've got a small oil flow being delivered only to the rockers. Yep. And you've got a couple of push rod tubes going up to them, which are delivering that oil and a piston going up and down. It's, it's really, really simple. And actually, if you leave it alone for a while, it's not going to take two seconds for oil to flow up a tiny little, you know, three thirty second inch gallery to oil the top of your cylinder. Yep. Well, all of a sudden now we've got this sleeve which has a complete hundred percent contact area with the with that which it's going up and down in the whole cylinder. So if you don't get oil in there, it gets hot in two seconds and it will seize. It's, it's got so much surface area that it will literally bind up, um, and that is the primary issue with the Centaurus. But the trade-off is the, the horsepower, the sheer power of the engine. And all Absolutely. That. And the total is completely maintenance-free. You do your valve, you normally you'd be permanently, I mean, we're forever adjusting tappets in this hangar. God, sick of adjusting tappets. We're always <laughs> adjusting. You know, you get a 2800 in, it's got 18 cylinders, and it, each one of them has got a pair of tappets on. Of course, they've all got one cover on with one gasket that breaks every time you take it off. and uh, It's awful. Absolutely awful. But all of a sudden, the, the, the sleeve valve, it doesn't have a tappet. No. It doesn't have valve timing. It doesn't have anything. It's all timed and gapped and tappeted when you build the engine. So if you build it right, it's right forever, right for a 1,000 hours. Wow, 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 wow. So, so initial early pain, but huge benefits afterwards. That's it. Clever stuff. So, I mean, but you've obviously worked on loads of different airframes. You've flown lots, with lots of different engines. I mean, you must have seen such an incredible range of structural styles from, yeah, okay, Tiger Moths, but but also through to the ME109, Hurricane, all the way through to kind of Tempest 2s and Sea Furies. And there's some amazing comparisons. I mean, I just think, I think the most interesting comparison for me is that the ME109, and I've been lucky enough to do a lot of work with a chap called Craig Charleston, who I know you know well, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's absolutely top and, bloke. You know, he is Mr. Messerschmitt. Like, there is nothing he doesn't know. He knows everything about e-model Messerschmitts, and he's restored two to Airworthy and one that is now Airworthy in Germany. So I've been lucky enough to spend quite a lot of time around the ME109E. And obviously, I know a lot about the, the F model as well now. And the, this aeroplane is exactly the same size and almost shape as a Spitfire. It's got completely different engine developed for a completely. There is no, there is no commonality in any way between construction engines, how it works, how it gets extra horsepower, where you put the spark plug. You know, there is no other than being water cooled. There is no similarity, and yet the aeroplanes on a performance basis were so similar. You know, unbelievably well That's matched. An amazing point. I can't ever really wrap my head around how 
how the e-model certainly and the early Spitfire was so well matched. There should have been, and they're certainly when you put them next to each other and said, hey, these, these two airplanes fly exactly the same speeds and everything. People are going, no, you're, you're bonkers, mate. They can't, but, but they do. It's yeah, that is incredible. Clever. That's a fascinating point, isn't, isn't it? it? I've never of thought te- of it like Technology that. delivering two very different solutions to the same problem and delivering right. to the spec. I mean, it's... But you look at, you know, two aeroplanes, let's say the Spitfire and Hurricane, both built in 36, unless I'm mistaken. Um, you know, again, very they're very different. They're powered by the same engine. Yeah. But they're, they're, they're chalk and cheese from a performance standpoint. They're miles apart. Yeah, yeah, it's not interesting. Then I suppose if you look at tank production, the stuff that's at the front lines in 1940, they're kind yeah. of they're, they're coming at things very differently as well. Yeah. But essentially, essentially delivering the same kind of... Vehicles. Those early cruiser tanks are very like Mark Ones and Mark Twos. Yeah. And then a thing like a Matilda Two is miles away from yeah. anything the Germans. It, yeah, I completely so. different. But they but but they arrive within the. Is it? I mean, that's. Well, I'm thinking, the, I suppose I'm thinking more more about kind of you know how you construct a wing, how you construct the fuselage. So interesting. All that kind of stuff. There's different approaches. Aren't interesting. There? It's such an interesting point. I mean, is it that? I mean, I, I think we may have touched on this before. That uh, you know, a thing like a Spitfire is a wooden aircraft made of aluminium. Yeah, Where, absolutely. Whereas the Mustang, when we came and saw you last time, you said that the thing with the Mustang is eight bolts to take the wing off or whatever it is. Yep. It flat packs. It goes in a ship. Um, yep. It's completely modular in its design and, and not this sort of weird thing built by someone who make, used to make flying boats. Um, <laughs> you know, because, because, I mean, just the main spar in the Spitfire is a thing. Oh, it's is an ex- a disaster. Well, well, it's an extraordinary <laughs> piece of engineering, but obviously is someone conceiving of things in terms of wood and wood interacting with other wood and all that sort of thing, isn't it? Rather than approaching yeah, it right. from, from a metallurgical point of view, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, when you look at the Messerschmitt, it is, you know, everything's an extrusion. It's kind of more Mustang-y, actually. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, why it's a load lighter, like a wing of a Messerschmitt, you can, certainly an E-model, two people can pick up um, wow, really? There's a wing of a Spitfire. Oh, yeah. There's a wing of a Spitfire. Is, it's like a good five, six-man lift, and they'll be sweating. So, no, I mean, it, you know, design... I think, obviously, everything was moving so fast back then. Yeah. From, you know, from moving from externally braced biplanes and, you know, swiftly on to, to, to monocoque, you know, fighters. Yeah. Monoplane, monocoque fighters. It, it, I guess there's a, there's a level that... The changes came so fast that they, the engineers couldn't keep up with it. Yeah. Um, I always look back and think of the design. Like, was there someone sitting in a design office just drawing pretty aeroplanes on a piece of paper and then just hand them so to some that. poor yeah. chap with a slide roll yeah. and going, God, here we go. Here's Jeff's little shiny design again. Well, I mean, how on earth are we going to make the wing not fall off? I'd say the Westland Whirlwind falls squarely into that. I mean, it just looks yeah, like a hot rod, doesn't it? It's like, oh, it you does. know, I'll stick yeah. two big engines on it and four cannon in the nose and and look, it'll yeah. look swank. There's someone... There's, it's an aeroplane someone should restore. Well, someone's building one, isn't they? Aren't they? Is that right? No, there's a Whirlwind project. There is a Whirlwind project. They've been sort of uh, tickling me up on, on Twitter because I absolutely, I love the Whirlwind. I love the, I love the look. Great aeroplane. Really yeah. amazing looking aeroplane. Incredible thing. So you always always need to be wary of certain aeroplanes. When you look at an aeroplane and it's got a honking great piece of lead on the front of the fin, like the whirlwind does, where the fin joins the tailplane, there's this huge piece of weight. You think, oh, what did the Mark 1 of that fly like? Yeah. Um, Probably not very good, I would Well, it's the Coke can thing, isn't it, on the tail, isn't it? Oh, I've... You probably know far more than I if they've been bothering you. But it was my understanding that it was also a huge amount of weight. Yes, I, I, I guess um, it is too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing yeah. two jobs at once. I mean, that, but anyway, I mean, because that, that looks like an aeroplane designed by a six-year-old, which I think it well, appeals to me, you know. Yep. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> well, I still want to see a typhoon in Tempest Airborne. Yeah, I think the typhoon would be like, lo- it'd be lovely to see the, you know, in my lifetime, I'd like to see the whole lineage. Not a radial Tempest, a... a- Water-cooled Tempest. Yeah, Tempest 5. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best, trust me. Um, <laughs> but it is because that, that's an aeroplane that I, you know, I can still remember that being in my father's workshop when we still used to live down in Sussex. And it was just a very cool I'm gonna thing. My, I'm going to stick my neck out here. I'm going to actually say there's nothing I'd like to see more fly than one of those. Anything with a sabre in it would work for me. Ah, just that big air intake and the, you know, and the wings yep. and just the, it just looks so good. It's a shame Kermit's Museum isn't open currently because it is the cowlings on it are very impressive. 
Sexy I mean, was the uh, word you were going to use, and then you, yeah, and then you veered they're, away they're last a, minute. They're a thing. It's, <laughs> it, they're a proper thing. And it, I mean, the whole aeroplane is a great-looking aeroplane. And obviously, I know that we've just restored one with with the radial in the front of it, which I should point out actually outperforms the one with the sabre in it quite significantly, apparently. But I would love to find out for sure. But the the sabre-engined Tempest is unquestionably is it's there's a picture of it in our toilet so it must be good um just a great looking airplane yeah that's good enough for uh, me as a benchmark well richard thanks so much for taking time to talk to us um i mean you know all those planes to play with i mean the, I, 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 why are you bothering speaking to us on such a beautiful day because <laughs> yeah. i'm sick of the sight of them um, <laughs> yeah I've been waxing lyrical to anyone who's, who'll listen about Flying Legends a weekend or so ago, um, and that was great fun panning around with you doing the um, doing some commentary on that. And you were telling me just before we, we went on air that that you've you've got plans to bring back an air show at Cywell. That's what we're hoping to do. Yeah, June next year. Brilliant, um, fantastic. Just sort of got inspired, and uh, you know, air shows are a laugh, aren't they? Yeah. Well, the one last weekend was, I, I absolutely loved it. I really did. Best air show I've been to in years. I mean, absolutely years. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, I'm pleased to hear it. Yeah. I shall pass that on. Yeah, no, I thought it was it was absolutely fantastic. But anyway, well, good luck with all the ventures. Good luck yeah. with the Tempest 2. Let us know how that gets Thanks. on. Thanks. Mm. Yeah, well, I'm sure you'll probably, the internet will probably tell you when it flies. Yeah. And um, yeah, well, lots of more interesting Germanic stuff to follow. Um, and that's what the rest of my day is is filled with flicking through manuals of 109Fs to try and figure out what we need to actually get this thing finished. Well, actually, just before we go, you did make that very interesting point the other day that that you really need Germans to to restore the the engines because all the original engine manuals and stuff are all in that Germanic font, and it needs yeah, a native gothic-y. to be able to deal with them. Unquestionably. Yeah, and we've got you know that we've got the, the best natives on the case. Um, <laughs> they're you know, but they they're going to deliver us an engine come the end of the year, and um, I need to yeah, I need something to strap it to the front to if nothing is else. There not, is there not an app that can look at the typeface and turn it into Times New Roman? It sort of works, and it sort of doesn't. Oh, no. The problem is, is with technical German, is you lose so much in the translation, you don't know what you're losing. So no. Uh, yeah, my A level in German doesn't work for technical German. It doesn't work for normal German either. I should point out, <laughs> but because it, um, it was a long time ago, A levels. But um, no, it's it, it's a pleasure actually to do something other than a Spitfire. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to this afternoon. Brilliant. Well, happy birthday. Yes, and thanks again. Thank for, you. Uh, taking us through life as a warbird legend. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Hardly. <laughs> Legend in my own lunch hour. Uh, um, thanks, everybody, for listening. We will see you all again very soon. And thanks to Richard. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Cheerio.